0: Out here in the perimeter there are no stars out here we is stoned immaculate hello and welcome this is the c86 show i'm david East as you know we love a special guest this week is going to be the turn of the american author writer poet actress dancer musician from la this is pleasant Gaiman, who i spoke to very recently to find out more about life love Poetry, um, was one time the singer in the punk band Scream and Sirens, has gone on to do lots of other things, including belly dance and tarot reading, has brought out a lot of books um, which we'll hopefully be talking about, including Princess of Hollywood, and has just recently written a memoir of sex, magic, drugs and rock and roll, it is titled rock and roll witch and this has come out on punk hostage press so do check it out it's a fantastic read but um this is the interview so after several minutes of casual chat we got down to that exciting subject that really was the early formative years and what was childhood like anyway pleasant take it away
1: um well i was me and my brothers and sisters were kind of feral we had a single working mom and ever since we were little we were just like kind of what you would call latch latchkey kids yes <clears throat> excuse me i've got really bad allergies today yes it sound like an old man on the sopranos right now <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so but i i started getting really into rock and roll when i was like probably like 11 or 12 12 for sure yeah, uh, yeah. And I, the first people that I discovered were pretty much everyone you said. And um, it was it was mostly from watching the Midnight Special, like the, the concert shows that used to be on um, at, at night, like around midnight, like in, in America, the Midnight Special and Don Kirshner's rock concert. And they would have people like T-Rex and Bowie on and, you know, all of those sort of glam bands, as well as like other artists. And sometimes they'd play something old, but you know, like someone by Jimi Hendrix who had had already passed a few years, you know what I mean? But like, I loved those. And then when I went to record stores and started shoplifting records, (laughs) (laughs) which was like not, no mean feat. It wasn't like shoplifting a CD or a cassette. You had to be really talented to shoplift records.
0: Yes, absolutely. (laughs)
1: um but i i you know i already knew who bowie was but i i, I wasn't really that familiar with him but the first few records that i uh, that i took um sorry universe i wouldn't do that now or for decades but um i picked them by the cover the covers which sort of like also showed me um how how much like appearances and branding can okay. <laughs> are right on. So I, I picked like the New York Dolls first album and Raw Power by the Stooges and um, Aladdin Sane. Yes. So yeah, and those are still like some of my favorite records. And it wasn't until uh, later, like after I'd already discovered punk rock And already started um, dating Levi Dexter that I started getting into rockabilly and old R&B and all of that kind of stuff because I hadn't really been exposed to it. My mother taught um, musical theater at a, a university when I was growing up. And so the only songs I ever I could t- I could sing every like Broadway musical soundtrack probably in its entirety but I discovered rock and roll on my own but because there was no internet or social media um you know any of the college students I knew that were playing rock were playing something that had been very recent and then uh so yes I, met, <laughs> I got schooled and like all the the old stuff like like here's a funny one he he was playing Mystery Train by Elvis one time at my house. And this was like in 1979 or maybe 1980 at my apartment. He was playing it. And I just looked up and I was like, wow, this is amazing. What, what, is, what is this? You know? And he said, it's Elvis. And I was like, no, come on. And he's like, no, this is Elvis. And I was like, shut up. Because at that point, you know, like Elvis had just passed. And when he passed, I only knew of fat Elvis, you know, old man Elvis. And so I didn't believe him when he said it was Elvis. And he showed me the the record cover that it was from. And it was exactly the same as the the Clash. Sorry, the Clash's (laughs) record cover. And then Elvis was on there looking so handsome. And Mystery Train was so hot. My mind was just blown. I was like, what? (laughs)
0: Yes, absolutely. Because you said in the book, kind of 75, the mid 70s, you moved to L.A. And this is where you saw your The Queen concert. Where did you where were you before the L.A. move?
1: I was in I was in um, a small town. I was we were living in a small town in Connecticut. Um, My mother was teaching at Wesleyan University. But um, I was really smart and also very delinquent. So I got sent to a boarding school, which wasn't like a jail or anything. It was, it was a prep school, but they were trying to get like lower income students in there. That was the beginning of when everyone started doing equity stuff, which didn't really escalate till later. So I got in there and my mother, I think wanted to send me away because she thought it would be better for me because I was smart and because there was no crazy college students around, but she also didn't understand that there was, um, you know, most of the students there were really rich, and um, their older brothers and sisters had access to the best drugs on earth. Right? Yes, um, this is true.
0: So, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so were your were your parents? I mean, were they? I mean, they were obviously quite educated. They were lecturing in musical theater theater at college. How come they were slow? Were they a little bit dipsy at times?
1: Uh, no, my I hadn't seen my father since I was four. Um, they And they separated then and then, but he was a really famous entertainment and music writer. His name was Richard Gaiman. He wrote some really, he wrote, he wrote um, tons of books, including like authorized biographies of people that were his friends. Like so he had one book called Sinatra and his Rat Pack. He had another book about Jackie Gleason. He had one about Jerry Lewis. I mean, so my parents were both show business people.
0: Yes, because I have, bizarrely, did an, I did an interview with old Levi Dexter and also Smutty Smith and various other people from the the Rock Cats who sort of yeah. came from the UK, didn't they, with Lee Black Childers and they went to New York even though sort of Smutty couldn't even play the bass but he had the look and Robert Mapplethorpe took the photograph that looks so beautiful with his tattoos. So how did you get to meet Levi at this stage?
1: I met I met Levi and Sumat in New York. I was in New York in 1979 with Kid Congo, who um who was my you know my roommate in like three different punk houses and in New York. And uh, he wasn't he wasn't he wasn't Kid Congo then. He was he was Brian Tristan. He wasn't in um I think he was barely in the gun club at that point, or it just started it and they were only a local band, you know, with him and Jeffrey. So we would just go back and forth from New York and we were staying on the Lower East side. And we kept, you know, we would see famous people on the streets all the time because it was in New York. And by famous, I mean, the Ramones were walking around or like this was when Sid Vicious was there before, you know, the whole Nancy Spungen murder thing happened. Yes. And so, and so we saw Levi and Smut a lot on the street and we were just like, whoa, who are those, who are those boys? You know, cause they, they looked so incredible. Yes. And um, then we saw them at Max's Kansas city. And then when we came back to LA, we were telling everybody about Levi and the Rock Hats. And I didn't know Lee, but I knew who he was from all the David Bowie stuff and from about reading in him in rock and roll magazines. And um, then the Rockats came out to LA and this was after Kid and I had already been talking them up about it. And I can't remember if it was Lee or someone else that contacted me about a photo session with them. They wanted to have the Rockats all um, surrounded by punkettes, you know, because it was it was like some publicity thing. And so I was just like, no, I need to meet those guys because I had been telling everyone in LA about them.
0: Yeah. (laughs) um, Absolutely.
1: So instead of looking like a punk, I just um which I, you know, I had punk hair then, but I sort of fashioned it into this 1950s Italian movie star thing. And I and I took these old clothes of my mom's from the 50s, like a pencil skirt and a battling blouse and I put on 50s makeup. And this was taking place at in the in the basement at the mask, LA's first punk club. And um I in my head I was like, if I look like an Italian movie star a 50s pinup, they're gonna they're gonna put me right next to Levi or Snot, you know. And that's exactly what happened. <laughs> 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 and then, and then by, by the end of that photo session, I had a date. And then Levi and I started seeing each other.
0: Fantastic. And, yes, because I know that was-
1: married. Yeah.
0: Because I think they there was a sort of split in the band, and then it was another band called the Havelinas. That, um, that was I don't know.
1: way later, way way later.
0: Was it later? Yes, oh, yeah.
1: so much later, like years later.
0: Oh, yes, because I know the guy who was in that also wrote a song called "High Hopes," which Bruce Springsteen covered many decades later, which was all very good. So, were you were you sort of quickly picking up on the music? Was music becoming the most important part of your life at this stage?
1: It, it already was yes it already had been for for literally since I was like 12 and then when I was um 16 and 17 <clears throat> i I started thinking like I you know I could write better about rock and roll than most of the magazines I was reading but that seems conceited but um then when I was 17 I started doing it and started doing my own fanzine which was mostly punk and it was all Xerox. but it was anything that I liked I was writing about. This was after I came to LA. And then from that, um, a weekly newspaper, it was like the biggest underground paper in LA, contacted me and they wanted me to do a rock and roll gossip column. And so uh, then I also wrote like my first feature for them, which was about Levi and the Rockouts, who had just come there. And then I started, Just sending off samples of like review show reviews or stuff to other like really legitimate big magazines and newspapers. And the funny thing was, I had cut typing class forever because I thought it was stupid and boring. And you know, I would cut it to go and smoke pot after school or go and listen to records while underage at someone's house. So then it would take me like 20 minutes to write these reviews longhand, and then I'd stay up all night. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> to, you know like with one finger typing it and so i sent them all in to these different papers and every one of them accepted it and paid me and then asked if i got more so then i figured oh, so now since i've got one foot in the door um you know like i'll just send them more so i sent them unlined school paper with holes punched in it, like notebook paper, handwritten. And then every one of the editors called me back because there was no email or anything in those days. And they and they would say, do you think you could type this up? And I was like, ah, my typewriter's in the <laughs> shop. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> then I was like, note to self, got to learn how to type. And yes. I, still, I still type with two fingers, but I do it lickety split now. <laughs>
0: And how did you cope sort of during the sort of the 80s period? Because obviously going from LA to New York, and there was there was Max's Kansas City CBGBs, and then there was also the Mud Club. Did you sort of veer into all those other I was at all
1: of those? All of those. And then in LA, I was working at the whiskey as the ticket taker, and I was also putting on shows there. Um, you know, my my magazine Lobotomy, that fanzine I was talking about, we would have shows with my friends. It would sell out because they were the favorite bands at that time. But now, when people look at the bills, like you know, if I posted on so on social media, it was like stuff like X and the Go Go's and the Alley Cats, and you, you know what I mean like stuff that looks like super groups, but they were all local bands then.
0: Yes, absolutely. I know that's, I mean, people look back and think, wow,
1: oh, I know. You know, the funniest thing about social media is. Uh, <laughs> like i'll post pictures with i mean just for example someone my like kid or belinda or anybody you know from back in the old days and people and, and most of the people will like write on it wow cool you met Joan jet and i don't want to say like yeah i was at a fucking house with her every day for like <laughs> years or yeah belinda was my roommate i mean You know, I I just don't even people don't even know because they, you know, that are younger because we all just knew each other. It was it was like how it is now, except you had to go out or physically hang out to meet and know someone. You couldn't just go on a Zoom. You couldn't just like make arrangements with them to meet somewhere on social media. You know, you'd either have to call them and then meet there or you would just go out to a party and there'd be a bunch of people you knew.
0: Yes, community. I, th- I suppose in in the UK, what what, what I realized was that um, there was a lot more gatekeepers. We had three weekly music papers, like the Melody Maker, NME, Sounds, and then and also there was like one particular DJ called John Peel. I know you've got a particular. Oh DJ. yeah, I
1: know who, who he is. And then like in so we used to oh we were addicted to Melody Maker, Sounds, and um, sorry, and we um, NME. You know, yeah, we were so into them. But we would get them on a fucking boat like two months after stuff was happening. So we would like, we would look at these like postage stamp size pictures of like the sex pistols or Susie and be like, wow, that is so cool. I mean, just getting so much energy from a tiny little photo, but it, you know, we knew that there was a lag in time, but that's how, but that was what was really inspiring us was the UK papers because the American Um, magazines and papers were not covering punk at all, you know. They would still cover stuff that we were interested in, but it it didn't catch up for quite a while, you know.
0: Yes. And when did you start to develop your kind of the spiritual aspects of your life? When did this start to sort of creep in with things like tarot and, you know, energy forces and such like?
1: That started at exactly the same time as rock and roll, like around 12, 13 years old. I was already, I was already having like Ouija board seances then. I had saved up money from babysitting to buy tarot cards, which I had no idea to use because it didn't come with an instruction book. And the kind I got were like this French tarot called the Marseille tarot. If you saw, it. if you saw the kind Rider-Waite-Smith, that's like, you know, the universe, universally popular one for people to teach on and i use it to teach on you could kind of tell what's going on by looking at the pictures yes uh, on the minor arcana but this one the minor arcana would just have like nine swords or like eight pentacles and i would i would be like so i would just make up stories about what was going on in the major arcana and people would always say like I mean, people by that, I mean, my friends, because I was you know, I wasn't professional. Or I was just learning to be like, like, that's exactly what happened. Or this is the, this. And then I didn't know then that that was like psychic. I thought in order to be like a real psychic person or a real tarot card reader, you just had to like know everything immediately.
0: Mm.
1: <laughs> I didn't know how stuff worked, but that was going concurrent with rock and roll. So um <clears throat>
0: How did you, How did you navigate that period without getting into too many of the the dark, dark outs? Because I was doing an interview the other week with a guy who was who was looking back at his life, and though he dabbled still, he said that when he was younger, it was it all got a bit too heavy, and the Alistair Crowley stuff started to creep in, and it was you know some really weird stuff. Did you when you look back, was, was there elements that you thought, God, that, was, that got a bit sort of um, messy at times?
1: That, I mean, I didn't have an, I knew who Alistair Crowley was from Led Zeppelin and I had tried to read on him, but again, you, you couldn't like just, you know, Google it. So I would have to like go to the library and get magic books to see who Alistair Crowley was. Um The darkest stuff that happened with me was, was Ouija board stuff. You know, it was like just really crazy stuff happening with Ouija boards. I'm like, I mean, there's like, stories in my book rock and roll which there's like a story called spirited communication and go go with belinda and i doing a ouija board and that was like a funny incident i'm not going to give it away but it was still scary because it was real so also i didn't have any guidance on how to use ouija boards i thought you could just get on them and talk to spirits like how you would with the person but i didn't know like you know now if i do it and you think a spirit has come in, you have to like do all these checklists to make sure it's who they say they are. Cause it could be like a demonic spirit or it could be like a trickster. It could be someone trying to impersonate your, an ancestor you're trying to reach. Like I remember one time on my father's birthday, I was with um, another girl that I do a lot of magical work with and um, paranormal investigations with. And so I was like, let's contact my father. <laughs> so he came right in and, and you know and started talking to him and so crystal was like you know no we have to really like we have to really make sure it's him and i said okay um like let's just ask him how many times he's been married <laughs> immediately like um let's spell that s-i-x and she went oh come on and i was like hi papa <laughs> and she was like really he was married six times and i was like Yep.
0: <laughs> Excellent. My God. That's so strange. So yeah, so navigating out of that, well, not out of that, because obviously you've managed to sort of navigate in, in that world. Then belly dancing is another aspect of your life that comes on. How did this kind of develop as a passion?
1: I know, you know, my, my whole life doesn't make sense to most people who view it from the outside, but to me it makes perfect sense. Um I had always, always, always wanted to be a dancer. That was the only thing I wanted to be when I was little, aside from like, you know, I wanted to be like a belly dancer. My father wrote for National Geographic and I would, you know, his issues that, that he had writing in was always with the house. And I saw this tiny picture of a belly dancer and I thought it was the most glamorous thing I'd seen. But then I saw ballet on TV. And so I kept begging my mom when I was like seven for dance lessons. And she brought me into this tiny, tiny little studio, like a shoebox box size studio. And the teacher took one look at me and she said, oh, she has flat feet. She'll never be a dancer right in front of me. And I just went home and cried all night. Yes. Um, like You could never people would never say that in front of a kid now. But um, anyhow, I was still putting on shows in the living room and in the garage and dancing around and making costumes and doing all that stuff. But um also like acting when I was young, like in stage plays and, and in a couple of movies, you know, that was student films from the university before I started really acting. But then one time I was at a rock and roll club in LA and uh Fishbone was playing that band Fishbone.
0: Yes, Mom Pa. We love that so much. Yeah. It's such a classic.
1: Yeah. And so I was so I was dancing, and when I went into the restroom. This girl asked me if I was a belly dancer, and I said why, and she said because you move like one, and I said, oh, that's that's awesome. And then I said, wait, are you a belly dancer? And she said yes. And they started. I then I was like, you you gotta teach me. You gotta teach me. So I um I told her I we could do it in my band's rehearsal space. My band, the Scream Sirens, we had a rehearsal space. And I moved all the amps and all the chords and I called up like every girl I knew. And this was still on landlines. We're having belly dancing lessons at, at my studio <laughs> on, on Saturday mornings. And so a bunch of people came to the first one and then every time it would dwindle down. And um, so then finally I was the only person left. And that, but by then I found out other people in the LA area who were belly dancers. And so I started doing things like trading private lessons for cleaning their house, even though I, I couldn't stand cleaning. I hated cleaning, but this was how much I wanted to do it. And then, um, I did, a uh, a uh, uh, our first debut was at the Roxy opening for the heads, which Fantastic. was uh, later iteration. But then I started working at uh, clubs and then, um, Someone gave me a ticket to Egypt. Everything just happened like boom, 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 boom. Like, like everything that I wanted to do just happened. And then I quit my job at the Hollywood Reporter and, and just um told my family and everyone, I'm going to Egypt for like eight weeks, bye. And I did, which now I can't believe I did that with like $250, which even then wasn't a lot of money in my pocket. But I just went there to like learn dance and see dancers, and then I bought like a couple of costumes there. And then when I came home, it went full force. And then yeah. I was one of the, so every, the most significant, um, That this is going to sound completely insane, but even when I was little, when I was tiny, when I was like four, I'd be sitting at the dinner table uh, with my family and we don't, we were, you know, non-denominational, not, not really religious, you know, like not practicing any religion because it was the sixties. I would pray to Allah at the dinner table. And I, you know, I, for ages, I thought, oh, maybe because I saw Sinbad movies and I liked them. But later after I got to be an adult and really knew about the way occult and past lives and energy and metaphysics work, I was like, damn, why would a four-year-old pray to Allah? How do you know that? You don't fucking know that. No. You know? And, and then the first time I, I went to Egypt, The second I put my feet on the pavement, you know, because the planes used to land far out from the terminal at that point, I burst into tears. And I, you know, I was just like, wow, this is nuts. So the biggest, the biggest events in my life all came from dreams or like really weird experiences. And um, one of them was, you know, discovering rock and roll.
0: So, absolutely, yeah, and go. I yeah, guess yeah. going back to Egypt because we're in sort of the late 80s. I remember having one of those trips where you go travelling and you. I wanted to go and see a pyramid, so I ended up in G- Egypt and went down the, you know, the the, the Nile, went to see the Valley of the Kings and Queens, and went yeah to, yeah. to uh, the the kind of St Catherine's Monastery, and then went up this mountain where Moses got the Ten Commandments. I think it was ten, but it was an amazing experience. Did you get blown when you absolutely saw the pyramids? Because I remember walking and then looking up, going. Oh, my God, they are so awesome. I mean, what was that experience like for you?
1: The way that I saw them on that first trip was fucking amazing. Um, a friend of mine, there was a Swiss roadie from a band was staying at my house in L.A. because my house had just been robbed and my husband was a sound man. This was no longer married to Levi. So he was on tour. So I was letting this roadie that we were friends with stay at my house, you know, and then he heard me talking on a landline about going to Egypt. He said his his brother had just transferred there and was working for Swissair. So he called his brother and said, you know, my friend Pleasant is coming. And then I thought his brother was just going to meet me for tea. So he did on the first night. And then, um, but then he said he arranged for um, me to see the pyramids the next morning with a friend of his, and he couldn't go. So he sent this lovely woman over to my hotel and she picked me up and it was pitch black pitch black you know the sun wasn't even close to rising and we drove for a pretty long way and then we we you know came into these stables and um that the guy was speaking to me in arabic and she translated he said do you know how to ride horses and he said yes i'm very good at it so he gave me an arabian you know which is not a you know, they're, they're the best and fastest horses and there's lots of them in Egypt. It's Yes, yeah, you know, so at least like,
0: he didn't get yeah. you on a camel, which would have been terrifying.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I did that later. But so so he got me a horse and she went on a horse and we started walking and it, it, the horses started walking and I still, it was too dark to really see where we were. And then it's got more and more like dawn, you know, it was getting that lavender color and we were just in the middle of the desert and all you could see was the sky. Um, you know, like the sun wasn't even up yet. It was pretty incredible. It looked like a movie. And then, um, then the horses started running. And then they sort of made a turn. And then the um, her horse got way ahead of mine, and um, mine was just like running, 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 running. And so I I have been at enough like rent, you know horse stables to know that that means they're they know a route and they're they're close to getting. To the barn so they get really excited so they can come back. So I was just sort of hanging on for dear life because we're like flying across the sand. And then right as the sun was coming up, I saw all the pyramids. And so what you know, that the route that the horse would take was like sort of parallel to the stables out in the desert, and then it would make a big curve and come around and those those stables were right in front of the pyramids, but I couldn't tell at night because it was pitch dark and they weren't lit up in those days at night. Anyway, so that was how I saw the pyramids for the first time and it was incredible.
0: Did you it was, feel it was like was, being
1: in a, in a movie,
0: yes. I, I, I was kind of amazed by it. I just couldn't get my you know, I just couldn't get the the scale of it, it was just so extraordinary. And also, at the same time, thinking in the UK, we would have been probably just living in sort of ditches and sort of being so primitive, and the, yet yeah, they had built these monumental kind of sculptures which would you know, and and sort of it was just in those burial chambers, and then the Sphinx next to it was just, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I just thought the civilization here must have just been so much, you know, so advanced to what we were like in the UK. It was. Um, yeah,
1: or here. I mean, we are so much <laughs> younger than you. At least you guys have shit like Stonehenge, which like yeah. goes with the solstices and stuff. Yes,
0: we have. We have the Celts. I mean, how did you I mean, just going to the book, which is kind of incredible. When did you decide to to write the book? Um, when did this when did this kind of idea come to you? <clears throat>
1: Well, I'd I'd written a number of other books, but um, I started noticing that a lot of my other books had really crazy paranormal experiences in them. You know what I mean? Some of the stories, like Showgirl Confidential, has two or three stories that were super paranormal in it, even though that book was just about you know being on tour and on the road stories. So in in twenty twenty during the pandemic, you know, I was just like, I'm gonna write a book because I'd had these stories floating around for a while. So I just made notes on like as many supernatural and paranormal and witchy experiences as I could remember. And it wasn't originally going to be called Rock and Roll Witch. I didn't know what I was going to call it. But then when I realized almost every story has someone, you know, that's either like really famous or pretty famous or cult famous of rock and roll in it. And you know that I, I, all those people experienced the stories along with me you
0: know Yes, absolutely so, did yeah, it, did, so it that... did it did it feel like quite a process going through it and sort of bringing i mean obviously you know your own life story and you've done lots of writing but did also bringing this together in in a project did that feel like you were going through quite a lot yourself processing sort of memories and moments from the past well
1: yeah that i mean the way that i went about it was the way that i go about any book that I write I just I write down sort of I'm so sorry about this how bad I sound I write down um or I type in you know the a couple of lines about an incident that I want to write about and then I put it in a folder that just says book like Mm -hmm. that and then I kind of just play roulette what do I feel like writing about today but I with that with that book with rock and roll which I felt like I had to write the first story little lamb um it wound up being the first story, but I knew it had to be the first story in the book so it could kind of give context for everything. And I won't give away the story, but um, it was about a cemetery experience I had when I was very young.
0: Yes, I remember. Because, yes, that was Yeah,
1: but that story had so much. It brought up so many, like, harrowing, like, seriously harrowing, gnarly, sad, difficult memories about my childhood. It was really hard to write it i was crying a few times when i wrote it and then also what happened in the in the middle of writing it was really crazy i had i'd been writing it and sort of working on it all night and it was super late and the last sentence i wrote in it was about when my brother and i would would ride our bikes to the cemetery every day and then the next morning I I woke up and I was getting ready to do stuff, and my sister in law called me and told me that my brother had, she had come home and discovered my brother dead on the floor suddenly, and and the children had been there, you know, when it happened, and so that was just like, <clears> that that was just like, yeah, I could hardly even process that, and so we finally hung up, and I was sitting on my back porch and. I live next to this old brick, large 20s apartment building, which had been very noisy all through the pandemic. You could hear music nonstop. You could hear people arguing. You could hear people talking. You could hear people making dinner. It was dead quiet there. And I was just sitting on the porch, just like my mind was just reeling. And um, my brother and my sister-in-law and the whole family live in Minneapolis. And like everybody, they are. Fully into Prince. I mean, that everyone in Minneapolis is obsessed with Prince. And so they had just taken a few days before one of their children's graduation pictures in front of Paisley Park because they weren't having graduations at, at schools or even on football fields because of the pandemic, you know, because that was still 2020. Um, so I was just sitting there trying to process this. And so all of a sudden, in the middle of the song, um, Prince's song, Seven just blared on like it didn't you know just from out of one of the windows of the building at top volume there was no other music and it came on at the time when it said I am yours your mine will be together till the end of time so don't you cry and I knew that was a message from my brother and so then you know then I had like a I just you know collapsed (laughs) yeah
0: because 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 throughout the book you you give so much and I often wonder how you sort of not become some slight you know not a victim but sort of not sort of just giving too much of yourself away to end up sort of with nothing how do you sort of how did you balance that throughout your life not not to sort of to keep yourself empowered and not just to empower everybody else and end up slightly sort of just struggling through it all and when you need help often nobody's there to help you because you've just been given all your energy away
1: i i have a, a pretty a really good support system of people around me like people that i know but um i didn't i don't know um some people have told me i'm really brave and strong i mean including my brother my mother used to say like when she was alive she was like i don't know how you just you you just go and do things you're so courageous and but it never it never occurred to me about that until people a lot of people started saying that you know but in some ways this this might sound kind of pretentious but I feel like I was my life was intended to witness a lot of things and I think that's I, I think not only because my parents were writers but I think I was meant to write about experiences and to help people other people process through them and I think that's also why I'm psychic I, I don't know I don't even know how to you know some people would have told me I was an old soul even when I was little when I didn't know what that meant so I yes. don't know. but I mean I'm human like everybody else I you know it's like I've got good days I've got bad days I've got great days I've got horrible days but um, also I think writing in my own diary was a form of um, therapy you know I've been keeping a diary since I was 10.
0: Right I went to one of those Tony Robbins I don't know, unleash the power, you know, five days. He was big on journals, isn't he? And I think that's the sort of way of being able to process on every you know each each day of your life just going through sort of whatever's kind of coming up for you to sort of be able to move on and sort of move through it and and do you sort of feel and did you feel at the time and especially writing it did you feel that you were able to heal relationships with people that you were writing about or had thought about some you know some that had been slightly buried or were you always processing those relationships as you were going
1: um I mean most of the people in that book I'm, I'm still pretty close to like, like really close in many cases, including like, um, like my friend, Joan, that was in the early seventies. Um, the very, in you know, some of the very beginning stories like season of the witch and stuff. We, we didn't see each other for like four decades or something. And, and we, we re-met when I was going to be on the East coast. And it was just like, it was insane. It was like, we were middle-aged ladies, but just pick right up from the seventies. Yes, you know, and I mean, I'm really fortunate to have a lot of relationships like that. I mean, you know, that like a lot of the people that are almost all the people in that book, if they if they're not um, passed on, I'm in touch with them and or see them on a regular basis.
0: Yes, well, absolutely, and I know I know. Leave. I've done. An, I mentioned I've done an interview with. Levi and dear old Smutty Smith and um the other guy from the that band I mentioned the hell that's the one they're the ones yeah. but love I mean luckily, they've all sort of managed to survive and and get through it and and I know kid has got his book coming out in the autumn as well, hasn't he, which is great
1: know. you know what when uh, when kid and I were um we were talking about it um about our books, we were on the phone one day, and he said, you know, you're all over my book. And I was like, well, you're all over my <laughs> <laughs> Do you? Do- I mean, seriously, we had so many experiences together. Like we were roommates, like I said, at so many houses. And then we had so many psychotic things together happening to us psychotic good and psychotic bad but mostly good that like how could we not be all over each other's books so
0: how did you survive that late 70s and 80s period you know because most of those people got very strung out and became sort of junkies and most of them you know like the new york dolls all basically passed away how did you manage to navigate
1: all of la no (laughs) (laughs) i was i was like my this is this is also gonna sound you know like 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 extreme stuff in my life My older brother died of a heroin overdose um, long before heroin started really being a thing in L.A. But, you know, I was like, I am never going to stick a needle in my arm ever, ever, ever. And um, no pun intended, I stuck to that. But for a while there, you know, during that high heroin time in the late 80s and early 90s, I felt like um, I was the only person I knew who wasn't doing heroin.
0: No, it's, well, I, I guess you had a slightly similar experience to dear old Lemmy from Motorhead, where I think he sort of just witnessed too many people dying of heroin. So. Well, me
1: too. I mean that that too. But it started. I mean, so I I had a lot of people die from it. But even before that started happening, when people were start experimenting, with shooting up. I was just like, nope, because of my brother. You know, like I, I snorted heroin a couple of times, but also um, <laughs> the first time I did, not only was I vomiting a lot. But I started itching, and then I thought if I went in the shower, it could wash off. And I asked, I asked someone who was used to, like, I didn't know it was from the drugs. And then I was just like, I don't want to feel like Johnny Thunder's here. I'm just not going to fucking do this. You know, I don't want to be, like, constantly, like, picking at my face or scratching
0: you don't want scabs, do you, do, do, do at all? If there was something you could have just said to your, if you could have spent time, or if you can spend time with your 16, 18 year old self now, what is there any kind of particular advice you would have just kind of whispered in their ear, even if they ignored you? I just wondered what life's wisdoms you've sort of picked up, because my God, you picked up a lot, haven't you, that you would just kind of want to impart?
1: I mean, I think I—I I probably now at this point, I actually hadn't even thought of that question. But um, you know, I think I had a pretty good head on my shoulders at that point, even though it seems like I'm a—you know—to many people, I'm sure it seemed like I was a complete lunatic. Um, I think I—I I, I would have um, said, you know, to really cherish the people that are close to you which I did but I didn't know I still had that 16 year old sense of immortality until a little bit later when so many people started dropping like flies Mm. you know so um I I can't say live every day as though it was your last because I did that for decades (laughs) and I kind of still do except in a more healthier way you know
0: Yes. And did you feel, you know, because with tarot, Ouija and then the, the belly dancing, was that something you think, God, that was such a lucky thing to have got really keen and obsessed with because of just, it works on so many levels, not just mentally, physically and spiritually, but also just movement and being able to get into your body in a way that's quite different to anything else in life.
1: Yes. I have. I also, I mean, I, ever since belly dancing, I've done other kinds of dancing, including burlesque. And in, in LA, I have an occult burlesque show that just went into its fifth year. Um, This also came from a dream. It's called bell book and candle, like the Kim Novak movie, except there's an E on the end of bell to make it like a girl that came from a dream. And so, um, this this actually came about in a crazy way i I, there's a story about it in the book so i won't tell it here but it came came together through a string of synchronicities um and so that that became like a very you know well-known show and obviously it's been running for five years but that's also a really fantastic way of um mixing like magic and occult stuff with dance and who would have thought that like this came from a dream? I thought it was going to be one night. And now it's it's been five years of sold-out shows once a month in LA. It's insane. that's fantastic.
0: You're picking up the uh, the the sort of the manta, not the manta, the sort of the baton of the coquettes, aren't you? With because I've done interviews with Gerald um Fayette and Rumi, um, who was all sort of the legendary characters from the coquettes period. Yeah, yeah, the-
1: yeah. I know I've known Fayette since I was 16.
0: Yes, absolutely. So we, so how do you manage to filter stuff in your life? You know, because you must be getting so many ideas, dreams, messages. How do you sort of know which one to sort of follow and which ones are a little bit like going into a cul-de-sac of kind of confusion?
1: The ones to follow, like, just really stick out to me all the time, like all, all the time, you know. Like in the main ones that I followed, I didn't even realize until after Bell Book and Candle, was the main ones was the dream about my band, The Screaming Sirens, um, which I started in 1980, 80, at the end of 82, at the beginning of 83. I saw exactly how, how I wanted us to look and how it should sound and you know everything. I saw it full blown. Then the next one was belly dancing when that, uh, you know, I had been already having dreams about belly dancing, and then that that girl came up to me at the club, and I did not think that just everything, again, synchronistically was going to happen, like, you know, someone gives me a free ticket to Egypt, to someone I'm letting stay at my house, their brothers, I mean, that was insane, and then the third one, like, that was Bell Book and Candle, and at that point, I was like, wow, this has happened, like, every 15 years, a new chapter like this, and While I'm still doing stuff from the older chapters, but like I was like, this is a pattern, and those things were so significant, and those were like the longest lasting projects of my life, you know? Yes. And how
0: did the band develop in the 80s? Because I know from in the UK, we had that sort of the eighties was sort of very much that it was a new romantic thing with people like Duran Duran and Spandau Ballet. then you had the independent scene with people like the Smiths and then you had the goth scene with the cure and the Susan the banshees and and the cult how what was what was your sort of the life lifespan of your band ten years ten years so,
1: yeah so it was um it came up in l a because in l a we were we knew all of the goth and the new romantic stuff that was happening um, over there. There was clubs here devoted to it. One was called The Veil, you know, and all of that, you know, we loved Bow Wow Wow. We loved Adam and the Ants, because by that time, everyone was starting to know who was who. And yes, um, but there was also a huge movement here called cow punk. Um, That's not what we called it, but people started calling it that. And that was, you know, bands like my band, The Screaming Sirens, and then Rank and File, which was you know, Chip and Tony Kinman from the Dills, and then Tex and the Horseheads, and a few other bands, like Blood on the Saddle. We started, we were so obsessed with like what would now be called Americana, right. or old Roots, Roots music, old rockabilly, old like Western swing that had an edge to it, all that kind of stuff. Like in my in the case of my band, I wanted to. I wanted us to have Andrew's sisters like harmonies. And I have this written in my diary, perfect girl group, Andrew's sisters, harmonies, um, but like hard country music, you know? And so we were trying to play hard country music, but like my guitar player, she, she was a country player, but everyone else had only played in punk bands. So it wound up coming sounding a lot of it, like, like Patsy Cline and... Um, you know the Shangri La is singing along to like some Ramonesy country, <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't supposed to really sound like that. But it's like I said, it was right on the genre of punk. You know, like punkabilly is what we called it. You know, while other people were calling it psychobilly or you know now Americana or yes. you know punk.
0: That's that's so interesting. Yes, because in in this like country, the
1: Meteors were kind of doing that around the same time. The Meteors. Yes okay but they were they were like more harder and more kind of crampsy y, more punky than what was happening we were we were more like american west about it kind of but it still was you know it wasn't like trying to be faithful to the genre i mean like you know we were just and and also my concept was that we looked like a bunch of saloon girls from gunsmoke or any other western movie combined with the hell's angels that was that was the, the fashion sense of the scream inside
0: so you you got on a major label in um and also you did two albums in the 80s as well so the band did pick yeah. up a lot of traction at this stage
1: yeah and we had a lot of songs and film soundtracks and we had a uk single and like a single in spain but um yeah we did that and then we started, oh, I think my gardeners are coming. It's gonna sound really loud. Let me close the doors.
0: yes, let's i'm I'm closing the doors. Hang on
1: sorry about that.
0: <laughs> no, that's fine, actually, yes, so anyway, yes. anyway
1: so so um. So we started like naturally gravitating towards a different kind of sound. Um, we were still doing a lot of our, our older songs, but I mean, we always had weird, crazy songs in it too. You know, like we did, we did a song called Mr. T love boogie, which I wrote as a joke. Excellent. Uh, I wrote it as a joke and we, we did it live a few times and people went insane because we had, we had like a dance to it. Like, it was, this was right when hip hop was starting to come in. So the first line to the song was, um, "Ow, Mr. T be hot, Mr. TV cool, Mr. T be a 10. And he make me drool, Mr. TV be rad, Mr. T V wild. I want to have Mr. T's child. Ooh, Mr. T. So we would do that and people went insane. And then we had this dance where even the girls with the guitars on, and, you know, we would all like, spell out our arms in like a t and like act stuff out in it and so it went crazy and then then that, that um you know enigma the, who was putting on our first record was like yeah you should put that on the album even though it had nothing to do with what the rest of the music was like <laughs> so we did you know but then we started we started morphing into like you know other sort of kinds of music like when rosie flores left she left to pursue like a, a career in straight up country which she is amazing at and always was she liked rock and roll and she could play rock and roll but her roots were country so we got a new guitar player that was um more rock and rolly and, and that changed our sound you know yeah. like she was also one of our the girl who was our bass player loved the stones and so she started playing rhythm guitar and we got a different bass player. So. Was that, it changed our uh, sound, but it wasn't conscious. It was just sort of mutated into a harder sound.
0: Was that Annette, the, the, the bass player that you were referring to?
1: What?
0: Annette. Was that Annette? Uh, well,
1: Annette was the, the very, very first with us. And then she she joined the Bengals.
0: After. Right. My God, you've got quite a rock. Yeah, there was quite a big lineup, wasn't it? I mean, an amazing lineup of um musicians. So when yeah. you when you went to record because you did um, two albums, Fiesta and then Voodoo. When you were recording Voodoo, did you sort of feel that when you were going to the studio that that was going to be the last album, or were you sort of looking at it still as a was it still a positive experience at that stage?
1: Oh, it was definitely a positive experience. It had taken us a long time to get a new label, though, and this was this was the hardest part about it because this was still before women were taken seriously in rock and roll like a lot of record companies wouldn't uh, touch us you know what i mean because they'd be like oh we already have a girl band or oh there's already the go-go's and it's like what like there's there's already the rolling stones so why do you keep yes like, you know, like <laughs> there's already a lot of boy bands and there's a, and just one girl band is enough you know what i mean yeah i mean they weren't you know that wasn't making any sense so um it took us a long time to record that we didn't think that it was going to be the last you know the last record
0: Uh, this was produced by ethan james who went on he was part of a band called jane bond and the undercover men who i loved actually but have completely disappeared i mean what was it like working with ethan
1: it was pretty great to work with him it was good um in the, the first album, we worked with Brian Ahern, who had just come off a project with Emmy Lou Harris, and he had he had no idea what was in store for him when we were there. Like, like he'd be like, um, Brian Ahern, uh, we'd be like, we need to have breaking glass at the beginning of this song. And he said, OK, I'll find a sample. And we're like, no, we want to break it ourselves. So we'd, <laughs> we'd, we'd, <laughs> we'd, we'd make him drag like mic stands out into the parking lot and then we just would get a bunch of empty bottles and like throw them at a wall and start screaming. And he was just sort of like, Whoa, who are these women? But so with Ethan, he already knew where we were and who we were, you know? Yes. So um, it was pretty good. He had some really good ideas. And then he really pushed me to, to sing like, like, you know, in a, in a, in not even, not really a different style, but to get like the best vocals that, that we could and then you know he, he was really good at, at like you know adding in suggestions or taking our suggestions so that yes was
0: did you find your vocal your singing voice quite early on in life with you know to do your with your mum and her sort of career
1: yeah I mean my mom also sang on um, she also sang on like the soundtracks of of those old cartoons you see where the cans are dancing off the shelf and she yes. had also been a ghost singer, which is kind of like a ghost writer. But she would, she would do the vocals for for people in different movies a lot. You know. Yes. Um, so, like, just singing was always in you know in my house. But I didn't even think anything about being in a band until way after I'd already been in rock and roll. And
0: after uh, the album came out, did you tour it or? Did oh you... yeah, we
1: toured all over the place. Yeah, we were we were constantly on tour. We were touring. Were you close to sort
0: of going to the studio for your kind of the third album, did it ever get that far, or did it sort of just? No,
1: we didn't. We didn't have a third album.
0: Did it? Did you have a moment? You all went and went to a, a pub. Well, that's in the UK. A bar in America, and sit down and say, "Let's let's just," as as Jim Morrison say, "Call it the end."
1: I that that was my call because I I just couldn't see a future in our band the way that the music industry was then and i didn't want to um you know that was already after i was i was dancing and starting to get a lot of like belly dance gigs like i mean not even just local gigs you know what i mean like it just seemed like like we had taken the band as far as we possibly could without help from like a bigger label or a or a real manager you know And so that was it was the 10 year point. And I was really sad about doing it. But I thought it was time. And then everyone else just kind of agreed. So we did it, you know, because, you know, it was great while it lasted. I didn't want to just like, you know, be be sitting there opening for people like, you know, in a few years or something, you know, fuck that shit. Like, you know, (laughs) I had other, other things I needed to do.
0: Well, I think with a lot of bands, they, there's that moment where there is just, n- the, the energy is not there anymore and there's no kind of really excitement. And then a few have reformed 20 or 30 years later and the fans suddenly appreciate them. I think we appreciate yeah, them.
1: Yeah, people keep asking, when are you going to do a reunion? But now it's hard because people live in all different states. We don't want to do like a Zoom reunion. I mean, it would be great to do a reunion, you know? Like we had, we had um, right before the pandemic, like a bunch of us met because coincidentally, like everyone was in LA on time, and we had a dinner at a, a Mexican restaurant, <laughs> and we fucking not on purpose, just scared the shit out of everyone in the whole restaurant. You know what I mean? <laughs> like just would be, even before we started drinking, I mean, we'd just be talking about something and we'd be like, ah, like just cracking up, and then you could you could see people going, like, damn, those little ladies are crazy. <laughs>
0: yes i know this is true i mean what do you what have you got planned in the next 12 months have you got any other more projects i mean this is probably a huge project and you've got your other sort of you know your your cards and belly dancing but is there anything else that you've sort of got lined up
1: um i want to i want to take bell book and candle my witch burlesque show and tour now that things are opening up that's going to take a little bit of time and it can't be everyone from here we're going to have to pick up dancers in other cities you know in the cities we visit but that's great because i know people in so many cities so that is something that i want to do um i have another book that's um getting sent out to agents right now i'm not going to say what it is um, I would, uh, you know, and I'm I'm trying to get a literary agent because I've never had one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this could help.
1: I, I tried to get one once, and um, they they read Escape from Houdini Mountain, which my publisher at the time was so dumb. She was like, well, "I'm going to put this as fiction because memoir doesn't sell." And I was like, "But it's not fiction." She's like, "Memoir doesn't sell," which was a load of shit um but anyhow so then i would send that book out to people and they'd be like um your writing is great but your characters um are implausible and the plots are unbelievable and i would be like i haven't, you know i couldn't just write back and say i haven't embellished the goddamn thing here (laughs) (laughs) yes anyway i've got more i think i might also do like a a follow-up to rock and roll witch because I still have so many fucking paranormal and witchy stories with, you know, that those were only the ones that made the cut. And this book is like almost 250 pages long. So I couldn't have had an encyclopedia length book about it, but it's doing so well that, um, you know, I think people would like a part two. Um, yes, I, should, I, th- I tell everyone where they can get it. It's, it's available worldwide on Amazon. You know, so you can get it in the UK or wherever you're listening. And um, you can get it at punkhostagepress.com or from my website, pleasantgaming.com. I will send you um, an assigned autograph.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. I have to say, the the illustrations in it are absolutely fantastic. Really. Thank you. They are so good. And it is kind of quite an extraordinary tale. I mean, I've never read anything like it. So it's been incredible sort of. And and when I came across Levi, I was like, my God, you, you know. (laughs) And, oh, yeah, just what was your experience of Lee Black Childers, this kind of enigma of a man?
1: Oh, well, I I had been obsessed with him since I was like 12 or 13. And um, I couldn't believe that Levi um, was being managed by him. And then at first. Lee didn't like me because he thought I was just some dumb groupie chick or something. You know what I mean? He was used to like um, girls glomming on to, you know, whether he, they, whether it was to a client of his or not. You know, and I think he thought I was just going to be some crazy groupie, so he didn't like me at first. But then we we um, you know he was suspicious of me, but then we got to be such great friends, and and I just absolutely. I still love him and think of him all the time.
0: Yes, because I know there's a David Bowie connection with Lee Black Childers, isn't there?
1: Yes, you know what? I want to know something funny. Um, when the Rockets moved back from um, when they mo- when they were moving out of an apartment that they had 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 been staying in um, in L.A. and they were going to go back to England for a while, I was cleaning out the apartment for them, like just the stuff they left behind in case they left anything good, you know. Yes. Like, and so I, I found like a little stack of pictures of Lee's, and I honestly don't remember at this point. I might have picked them up because I do have this trunk from that time period that I still haven't opened, and it's like a time capsule. And my neighbor keeps saying, We have to open this. We have to open this. You know what I mean? Like, but anyhow, um, one of the pictures of Lee's, there was great onstage pictures of a lot of different people, but my favorite one was this backstage picture of this boy. You know, I mean, obviously, I'm, you know, not an underage boy, but I'm saying boy because he looked like the perfect 70s hustler. He had that sort of like white blonde cut, and he was totally naked, obviously backstage, and he had a Mott the Hoople backstage pass on his thigh. <laughs> <laughs> like from when Lee was working with Moth and Uple and I was like this is the most genius thing I've ever seen.
0: That is very nice. Did you did you ever meet Mr. Bowie?
1: I met him one time and it was because he was for hours sitting on my leather jacket at the mud club in New York like in those days it was safe to like leave your leather jacket like laying on a couch or something as you went to do something else and as I was going back into this back room I saw all these people like running out of there crying and just running and you know and I saw this girl I knew and I was like what's going on in there and she was like Aah! like she, she just sort of like was motioning with her hands and she ran past me and I was like it none of it seemed bad and then and then someone else came running out and said Bowie's in there and he's sitting on your leather jacket and I was like "What?"
0: So yeah, that was how uh I nice just
1: God, for a seconds.
0: That's fantastic. Yes, because that's amazing that scene with Billy um Levi, because there was kind of yes, yeah, so it was uh, that was Tim Scott McConnell and also yes. the other guy in the band who I've done interview with, Danny Danny B. Yeah, Harvey, Danny Harvey. Yeah, I know which, I know them all,
1: yeah. So
0: you really what you did luck out with that gang because not only were they together quite together people they've all sort of gone on to have quite interesting careers as well so um
1: I mean yeah almost everybody I know has I mean that that's what constantly blows my mind about that punk scene and that you know the people that all came together I mean like everyone I mean we've lost a lot of people obviously like with any punk scene some to age some to like insane accidents or drugs but the people who are left have all just flourished in pretty much what they were doing at the time of punk which is just incredible to me
0: yes it is amazing and, and then danny in you know, danny harvey is just such a together guy who's yeah you know got a great career and he worked with you know slim jim and also lemmy so my god that's yeah. that's just rock and roll sort of a list really isn't it did you ever right. meet did you ever meet dear old lemmy who Lemmy from Motown. Lemmy,
1: yes. I used to see Lemmy all the time at Jumbo's Clown Room, which is very close to my house, that famous strip club. Yes. Um, I have to go
0: now. Yes, of course. Good to do. Well, look, this has been,
1: been fun. Because I'm old. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is yeah. all good. We, we all need that. But look, do write your second book or the follow up book to this because I think you must have so many stories. But look, thanks again for this. And if you want, I can always send you the link and you can always put it on your se- social media platform sites. Oh,
1: yeah, please do. Please do. That would be
0: great. Look, mm-hmm. sorry about the time thing. Um, it's now. Okay. Hop up. It's, We were just an hour wrong. Anyway, look, take care. Have a great day.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Take care. Cheers there. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 And that, dear listener, is how you end a conversation in a way. Anyway, look, a massive, massive thank you to Pleasant Gemon for giving me the time for that uh, interview. This is uh, really about her life, but also about a new book that has just come out called Rock and Roll Witch, a memoir, indeed it is, of sex, magic, Sex magic, uh, drugs, and rock and roll. And this is on punk hostage press. Do check it out. And also do check out her website, pleasantgemen.com. Pleasant, then it's G-E-H-M-A-N.com Pleasant. Um, it's all there, including tarot, dancing, music, and much, much more. Anyway, this has been David Eastall, the CD6 show. If you want to contact me, I know I sound very needy, don't I? You can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do C86show. Also, all these have been archived, so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.